Suffrics, your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. Sat back down. A longtime friend of the show, Parker Lewis, to talk about the contagion breaking out in Bitcoin and quote unquote crypto markets, the dangers of trusting your Bitcoin with centralized third parties, what they sometimes do with that Bitcoin, what the deleveraging event in the Bitcoin market has looked like. Over the last few months, and of course, we touched on the broader macroeconomic landscape and the Fed's effect on markets, liquidity, inflation. Very dense rip. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Parker works for Unchained Capital. And this rip was brought to you by Unchained Capital. This episode is essentially, at least like the first hour, is one large advertisement for Unchained. Uh, You see everything that's going on. With Celsius, the troubles at BlockFi, other trusted third parties, and this is why Unchained has built their company and their products the way that they do. They want to ensure that you, the end user, actually controls your private keys and control your Bitcoin. You have extreme ownership of it. The Unchained Capital Concierge team is your 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 Bitcoin driver's license school team. They're going to teach you how to properly secure keys and set you up with a two or three multi-sig volt. You want to eliminate these single points of failure in your custody model. Exchanges, trusted third parties are single points of failure. As we're learning throughout the last few weeks and months, uh, single sig wallets are single points of failure. If you lose your wallet and your backup, you are shit out of luck. Hit up the concierge team at Unchained Capital, get yourself set up with a two or three multi-sig volt of which you hold two keys so you always control your Bitcoin and Unchained holds the third key. Go to unchained.com slash concierge. I hope I pronounced that right, Parker. I probably didn't. Unchained.com slash concierge. Tell them the TFTC sent you. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. They're here to prevent you from being an idiot. That's what we've been running with the last few weeks. And I think it's a good one, Car. Brains is here. Don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot, freaks. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS auto-tuning firmware and you don't have it downloaded on that ASIC, you are an idiot. I'm sorry. These just the facts. Them's just the facts. Brains OS Plus you download it on your ASIC, it's going to make it more efficient. It's going to focus on the, the higher frequency hashing boards, hashing chips, excuse me, which, uh, which is going to produce more hashes for you, which is then going to produce more sats for you. Only idiots refuse to stack more sats. Brains is here to help you stack more sats. Uh, their auditing firmware is going to help you better manage your, your miner as well. It's going to help elongate the, the life cycle of that ASIC if you take care of it in good weather conditions. They're going to make sure that you know, your hash boards are taken care of as well with this auto-tuning firmware. And then on top of that, they have a bunch of other stuff. They have insights.brains.com, which is your one-stop shop for all the data and mining calculator needs that you may have as a, a somebody who's interested in mining or somebody who's running a mining operation. So go check out Brains OS Plus. Go check out insights.brains.com. That's, 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 that's brains insight insights 
dot brains. That's brains with two eyes, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. They also are the team behind Slush Pool. Uh, if you use Brains OS Plus firmware and you point it at Slush Pool, 0% pool fees, go check it out. Brains, doing incredible things. This room is also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer lending platform and a peer-to-peer trading platform or peer-to-peer exchange. It's not really for trading. It's better for just stacking sets. Uh, no KYC, no AML. The lending platform is lend.hodlhodl.com. That also uses Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. When you engage in a, in a loan on HODL HODL, you put your Bitcoin in the two or three multi-sig escrow account. You hold one key, your counterparty holds one key, and HODL HODL holds the third key so that you know your Bitcoin are not leaving uh, the account that your collateral is being held in. You're going to get it back if you're paying back your loan. Again, no KYC, no AML on those services. They're also throwing the Baltic Honey Badger conference this September, September 3rd and 4th in Riga, Latvia. I will be there. Matt will be there. We're going to be doing a live RHR there. Go to BalticHoneyBadgerConference.com to get your tickets. Very high signal conference. Good time to hit the Baltics early September. From what I hear and what I've experienced. I've been there before. I believe it was in October the last time I went though. So weather may be a little different this time. Uh, this trip was also, last but not least, brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data is here to take care of your mining needs. If you're a home miner, they have the black box, which you can purchase. You can put a couple of ASICs into the box and then you can plug it in on the side of your house and it's going to plug it in in your house if you fancy it that way. Probably not recommended though. Uh, and it's going to take control of the sound. <clears throat> it's going to temper the sound. Uh, it's a very quiet box. And then it's also got uh, a... It, it's going to help you control the heat or take care of the heat of your ASIC as well. It's fire retardant, um, and it's going to allow you to run those ASICs outside of your house. They have packages for that, bundles, uh, where you can get the black box and a couple of ASICs together shipped directly to your door. If you use the code FREAKS, F-R-E-A-K-S, you're going to get 5% off the bundles. It's not the only thing they do. Uh, they, they started out mining using stranded natural gas. And uh, they have their hash shots and their generators that they build in-house and they are fine-tuned for mining operations uh, on the well pad. But also if you're a utility company using to use excess electricity, hash shots are great for that. They have many different sizes. I personally own a 50 kilowatt hash shot, fit about 13 miners. We got, I believe, 13 M30Ss running in there right now. They've been running flawlessly. I can attest as a upstream data hash hut customer, my hash hut has had no downtime outside of oil changes for the generator. It has been hashing extremely consistently. Uh, it's dealing very well with the summer weather right now where my hash hut is located. Highly recommend the product. Again, with that service as well, they can take care of the infrastructure on the hash hut in data center side, or excuse me, the hash hut and the is a data center and the generator side. And then they can also help you procure ASICs. So go to upstreamdata.ca if you're interested in that and find, <clears throat> find out their customer support page, fill out a form, tell them TFTC sent you, and they'll get you on your way to taking advantage of this. If you're in the oil and gas industry, and you're looking to diversify right now, ASICs are cheap. There's a lot of miners going down out there having to sell their ASICs. So the price of ASICs are tanking right now. And so if you're looking to allocate capital into the mining industry relative to where it was 
this time last year or the fall of last year, it's a, it's a really good price point. So go to upstreamdata.ca, tell them TFTC sent you and enjoy this rip with our good friend Parker Lewis. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Contagion, contagion. Can we get away from it? The WEF will give us contagion and we will love it. <laughs> I think I actually might have had COVID last week. Really? Yeah. Is that fourth or fifth time for you? Second time, if I did have it. Yeah. Yeah. I've had it at least three times. Yeah, we had, uh, we got, we got the uh, warning from daycare that somebody in uh, my son's camp class tested positive and so they shut down the daycare for three weeks last week i think we need to get back to just saying when we're sick just saying when we are yeah no, and i was just like oh i got sick yeah I, that, that's what i'm trying to do here i think I, I was a little sick earlier this week you look good feeling good yeah doesn't stop you even with the uh the sniffles and the sore throat i was running doing my push-ups my sit-ups getting it in freaks can't sacrifice your health no you can't you gotta strengthen that health. Speaking of health, <laughs> doesn't seem like the, there was a lot of health in the uh, the overarching Bitcoin and crypto markets over the last two months. What the hell is going on? How are you viewing this as the head of business development at Unchain Capital? Yeah, I think that um, one is just par for the course for Bitcoin, right? So um, volatility is a natural function of you know, I, I think I always anchor to the the fundamentals of Bitcoin is valuable because there will only ever be 21 million. It has an immutable supply schedule. Um, its price cannot be manipulated over short or long periods of time um, because its supply cannot be manipulated. And that is the starkest of contrast to the legacy financial system. And that when I think about what's happening in Bitcoin, we can talk about things happening within the Bitcoin world. I think the overarching story is what's driving everything. And it's the fragility and the instability that uh, will never go away from the legacy financial system. And that while Bitcoin in year 13 is, is of significant size, it is still small in the context of the global financial system. If before this most recent sell-off over the last two months in Bitcoin, Bitcoin had a purchasing power around 750 billion to 800 billion. Global financial assets were 400 trillion-ish, right? And so um, while we're in this period of transitioning over to Bitcoin as the um, global reserve currency and the currency that facilitates day-to-day -day transactions for um, the vast majority of all commerce in the world, that's, that's the world we're moving towards. It's not that world today. The world today is anchored to a dollar system. And uh, it is the dollar system and its fragility um, and the fact that its money supply is managed, which creates the, the fragility and that when the Fed tightens financial conditions, um, 
liquid things get sold and, and Bitcoin is something that's liquid and the world has to adapt around the changing financial conditions because Bitcoin supply is immutable. There's no one to step in and, you know, take Bitcoin supply off the market to have its market rate go up. That Bitcoin would not be of value to the world if that were possible. Um, and what we have to deal with is volatility. And so um, I think we as individuals deal with it. We as companies deal with it. Um, but knowing that these things happen in Bitcoin, you prepare for them. Um, so, Yeah, and I guess that's one of the big questions that's been lingering in my mind over the last two months is, I think we could argue that this deleveraging in the Bitcoin and overarching crypto space started with the Terra Luna blow up. And is this a product of the Fed raising rates? And what we're seeing, particularly in the crypto space, is those particular tokens and DeFi schemes are what many would consider extremely far out on the risk curve. And so is a deleveraging all the way out that far on, on the risk curve, what we're seeing and sort of cascade in to the Bitcoin markets and the Bitcoin lending markets at all. You said Bitcoin, and there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. That's true. But what we're coming to find is that a lot of these centralized lenders that were taking people's Bitcoin and promising yield were using that Bitcoin to lend it out on the back end, rehypothecating it uh, to, to use the technical term. Uh, and and they're learning the hard way that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And if you don't have the Bitcoin at the end of the day and you give it out to individuals like Suzu and Kyle Davies at three hours capital who are going to go gamble on exotic products with that, you're, you're going to have some pretty massive consequences on the back end. Yeah, a couple of things there. So one, I think that all of this kind of initial sell-off is tied back to the Fed and kind of combination of their signaling, the market front running it, and then they're raising of interest rates on May 4th, and then imbalances within the Bitcoin market, a number of which you described and we can talk about in, in detail, that then created technical selling pressure. Um, but my view, and I always like to create this contrast between the dollar system and Bitcoin, to anchor to the fundamentals and then talk about it relative to the current market conditions is that there is a difference between dollar credit when banks create credit and actual bank reserves that are created via quantitative easing. Um, the only institution that can create more actual dollars is the federal reserve, not the banks that borrow from the federal reserve. Um, what ends up happening is, you know, we can talk about the history, but dating back to the financial crisis, Fed inserts new dollars in order to sustain an existing amount of debt, an existing amount of credit. That credit cannot be repaid. The market crashes, Fed steps in and doesn't print, digitally creates more base money. Um, and that base money reflects or materializes in a larger Fed balance sheet that then induces more credit. Fed wants to take it out. That causes a credit crisis, a liquidity crisis. And this will happen until the end of the dollar. Um, Add, you know, into perpetuity until the dollar hyperinflates. Um, that function of the Fed creating more dollars via quantitative easing is actually what creates the economic imbalance. It's not just the fact that they print money, it's that the function of printing money and manipulating every price in the world um, 
actually fundamentally and permanently alters the economy and one where the economy is being sent um, false signals everywhere, false price signals. And then when the Fed starts to take money out or even signal that it will, then everyone knows the music is going to stop. And in this case, in this first six months of May, um, which was different kind of in the, in the run-up 2017-18 before the Fed broke the repo markets, was everyone remembers what happened in March of 2020. And so when the Fed started to signal that they were going to tighten rates, literally the selling of credit started dating back to December. Um, and it was because that was only two years ago and those markets had memory. But the creation of dollars and the subtraction of dollars and the active management of that money supply is what creates this massively uh, imbalanced system and one of inherent fragility. But banks creating credit does not create new dollars. Only the Fed can. That contrasts to Bitcoin and kind of what you brought up is that if the BlockFi's of the world or the Celsius's of the world lend Bitcoin, it does not create more Bitcoin. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. What just happened is there's a lot of people that thought that they have Bitcoin that aren't going to get it back. Um, and that if those Bitcoin were lent and leveraged and used as collateral, um, whether for cuspier um, snake oil or to, to borrow dollars and to buy more Bitcoin, whatever they were doing with it, um, those loans got into a forced deleveraging event as the Fed was tightening conditions more broadly. And then where there are massive market imbalances within the world of, quote, crypto, um, those imbalances get eliminated because combination of there is no lender of last resort. Um, it is a free market. Um, people that make bad decisions, either because they deposit their Bitcoin into Celsius um, or potentially BlockFi or any other one of these schemes, they're not going to get their Bitcoin back. And when there's technical unwinds, forced deleveraging in the broader market, I mean, when you think about the, the, the global financial system, if the global financial system contracts 1%, it's $4 trillion of paper wealth that gets evaporated. 2%, 8000000000000 trillion, 3%, 12000000000000 trillion, and so on. Bitcoin in total was $750 billion. Um, so that created the initial selling pressure. And then there was imbalance of people being caught off sides in the, in, in the world of Bitcoin and crypto. And then when that forced deleveraging event that starts in a broader market comes in, then there is no one to step in and save the day. And those market imbalances get eliminated. And that's Bitcoin working. Um, and that when, when I think about Bitcoin as a system as a whole, it eliminates all moral hazard. Everyone is responsible for their individual decisions. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. If you trust those Bitcoin with an exchange, be it Coinbase or a lender like BlockFi or Celsius, um, you're put at risk, right? Or if you put them as collateral to a loan at Unchained, different risk, but still that is your decision and only the individual that participates there's the consequences in the cases of Celsius and a number of other people who are actually lending Bitcoin, which we don't do. Um, they got caught off sides. And 
that when markets sold off, forced deleveraging ha events happened in Bitcoin. Um, but nothing about that manipulates the supply of Bitcoin. The market imbalances in the price of Bitcoin get eliminated and the, the strong survive. Uh, and people that have been through markets and been through the volatility of Bitcoin, that, that it's about weathering those storms. Yeah, it's a pretty big storm now. And it's, it's insane, particularly to see Celsius, what they were doing, particularly and putting it all, locking people's Bitcoin up and wrapped Bitcoin and then putting that in these crazy DeFi schemes. The, the fact that Three Arrows Capital was able to go and get unsecured loans uh, of Bitcoin uh, just based on their reputation, which is proving to be a uh, pretty false reputation. It was all facade. There was really no uh, material, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There was, there was no actual performance behind what they were putting out there to the markets. And, and that's one thing that's really been in my mind the last few weeks is that the overarching Bitcoin and crypto sphere that is a trying to apply these incumbent financial system models to the Bitcoin market are are learning hard lessons fast, right? They're trying to recreate the the credit system on top of Bitcoin. And as you just described, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And once markets move against you, you like you're, you're going to find out who is well prepared to weather that storm. And many in the overarching crypto space were not, and even in Bitcoin, like BlockFi, particularly needing needing a bailout from FTX if that materializes, who knows where that process is right now. But it really highlights to me and why I've always been proud to have, and again, disclaimer, Unchained's a sponsor of the podcast, but it's for a reason because I think the way that you guys are building these financial service primitives on top of Bitcoin is the right way. And I think it's a good opportunity to sort of highlight the difference. I mean, you, you touched on it a bit um, right before my diatribe now, but like how does Unchained view the the loan book and how does that differ from the Celsiuses and the BlockFi's and the Voyagers of the world? Yeah, and I had never heard of Voyager, so I can only un not understand the people who I mean, found that place and decided to give them their Bitcoin. But um, I will... Like there's a couple things to um, kind of lay out uh, of differences. And I think that, you know, you brought up the point of a lot of people look at Bitcoin and they see this new form of money and then they try to replicate old models, um, uh, you know, of, of lending Bitcoin, rehypothecating Bitcoin, um, because that is what the legacy system does and, and, and what it's about and why we've gotten to the point that we're at in terms of not only as a function of, of moral hazard and money printing and QE bailing out rehypothecation and leverage on leverage in the legacy financial system, but all of those, not all, but many of those same people came in here and said, hey, let's do the same thing. It's just there's not someone to bail people out. Um, and that's the system working. But um, kind of there's, there's something that people oftentimes miss about rehypothecation. Um, rehypothecation doesn't necessarily mean that your Bitcoin is relent. Now, it oftentimes is, but, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, an important part of not rehypothecating, so in the context of our loans, 
Um, one, we don't lend Bitcoin. So we don't take deposits and pay interest on Bitcoin and then lend Bitcoin out to people like three years. We don't lend Bitcoin at all. Um, what we do is we lend dollars against Bitcoin. And we don't co-mingle clients' Bitcoin. So all Bitcoin tied to individual loans is secured in individual multi-sig addresses or vaults. And that Bitcoin is not rehypothecated. Now, what does that mean? Importantly, which people oftentimes miss because they always assume it's relending, that Bitcoin remains in the title of our clients. It doesn't become part of Unchained's estate. It doesn't become an asset of Unchained. It doesn't become a liability of Unchained. It is cryptographically segregated in unique addresses. Our clients are able to hold one of their own keys, but segregated in all instances. And importantly, the legal title remains in our, the name of our clients, which ensures that our clients, even in the context of our loans, when they post Bitcoin as collateral and receive dollars as loans against that, um, that they do not have counterparty risk to unchain. That if they make good on their obligations to pay their loans, it doesn't matter what happens to unchain, that Bitcoin is theirs and, and not ours. Um, and that distinction is really important. Now, what a lot of the ways that these lending platforms worked was deposit your Bitcoin, whether in the context of a dollar loan or not, uh, and we'll pay you interest in Bitcoin. Now, in some cases it was post your Bitcoin and we'll issue a dollar loan, but we get the ability to rehypothecate it and the title transfer. So it becomes part of the estate. If you read Celsius disclosures, they say this is now Celsius's Bitcoin. It is owned by us, not you. Right. So that's one critical distinction. But either in the context of, say, a Celsius loan where they're lending dollars and Bitcoin's posted as collateral, that Bitcoin is no longer yours. It is theirs. And they, they rehypothecate it and they have the ability to relend it. So, like those being two separate functions. Um, I believe that that BlockFi loans work similarly. Um, I don't know as expressly, but I believe they do. But then in addition to that, there are these separate programs, whereas just deposit your Bitcoin here. And we'll pay you a rate of interest. That was one of the issues, um, based on my understanding, that uh, BlockFi ran into with uh, the AG in New Jersey of those deposit accounts not being FDI assured, being pooled vehicles, looking like a security. Um, but that apart, you know, setting that aside of the, the regulatory issue, that Bitcoin was then being lent out. And I, I remember this very vividly with one of our custody clients who in the context of our custody, not in the context of our loans, our clients hold two keys. We have one. Again, all Bitcoin segregated, never becomes, it's not a deposit, um, not structured as a deposit, and no way can be confused as a deposit. But in the context of our custody, our clients have two keys and we have one. And Bitcoin's deposited, which means that in that context, people have permissionless censorship resistant access to their wealth. Um, but we had a client that was thinking about having their, or they had their Bitcoin on BlockFi and they're like, oh, well, it's at, Ge it's at Gemini because BlockFi uses Gemini as their custodian. And I think because people became conditioned to this world of yield that they put their money in the bank account and it pays the rate of interest. Now today, bank accounts don't hardly pay any interest, but for people that are older than 30 years old, probably remember some semblance of interest in bank accounts. But that what I think was happening in this world of deposit your Bitcoin to a Celsius and have it be paid in interest or deposit to BlockFi and be, have it be paid of interest, um, people were thinking about the Bitcoin just sitting there um, because they 
historically don't think about their money in the bank as at risk, even though it is. It's just that when the banks become insolvent, they get bailed out in the U.S. banking system. Well, there's no one to bail people out, but still that mental model, at least in certain cases of people that I actually talked to, was I put my Bitcoin into that place. They use Gemini as custody. Therefore, I trust Gemini with custody. And they just did not have a mental model of what was actually happening in the background. And that even those that did, I think, thought that they were like when we issued uh, dollar collateralized loans, like even after all of that, our loan book is over collateralized 2.5 to one in total. Each loan's in, managed individually, but our, our, our collateral to principal is 250%, the, the pr principal value of the loans. Um, that people that even probably knew that they were being lent out probably thought that it was in some way collateralized. Um, and that it was vanilla lending. But in the context of Bitcoin lending, virtually all of it, Bitcoin denominated loans, virtually all of it is to support trading activities. Now, what people thought was happening was I deposit my Bitcoin to a place like Celsius or BlockFi, and surely if they're lending it out that someone's posting collateral. Oftentimes that wasn't the case. But then in many ways they were, they were prop effectively prop trading. Again, not knowing kind of all of the ins and outs of individual operations, but they weren't just lending in a secured way. They were potentially taking primary risk. There was the the, the reports of, you know, the the ARB trade of GBTC. Of, of GBTC. And and I, I I was party to to one of these conversations. I remember a couple couple of years ago. I don't know who it was. I spoke to at Three Arrows Capital. Um, but they they had suggested the idea of creating an unsecured Bitcoin lending program at Unchained. And um, now we can't lend any of our clients Bitcoin. One, on the lending side, it's not rehab and then two, in the context of all, it's cryptographically not capable of, of that happening because our clients have their own keys. But in that conversation, this person was talking about riskless this, riskless that. Uh, I can make a riskless ARB 20%. And I just remember getting off that call being like, I don't know who these three arrows capital guys are, but like we should not go anywhere near them. Can't touch that with a 10 foot pole. But it was the same philosophy of how people were thinking about the GBTC trade, mm -hmm. where GBTC was trading at a premium to, um, to Bitcoin spot. And people literally thought like that will always exist. I'd say everybody. Um, a lot of people thought that would always exist. Um, I remember seeing some leaked slides from a BlockFi presentation where they were basically taking client assets and contributing them in to the trust, taking shares while I was at a premium with the idea of selling at a premium when the shares became unlocked. And that's in my world, there's probably multiple definitions of prop trading, proprietary trading. Like that is not a, I'm lending to you based on either a balance sheet or a secured basis. That's me taking primary risk. And, you know, seems like Celsius was doing similar things. And so there's just a whole host of layered issues where if you go back, like one people, a lot of people thought I deposited here. It's like a bank or like, like I literally had people say the Bitcoin secured by Gem. And I'm like, no, the Bitcoin's not there. If they're making a yield on it, it's at risk. Then the next layer of people thought, oh, well, surely it's secured. Um, and did not understand the degree of risk, which was basically taking 
prop trading positions and that when the market went against them, having a large client asset base um, and outsized risk. And truthfully, you know, people should have known better. Um, I can understand why they didn't, but again, coming back to the fundamentals, you know, I feel, I feel bad for a lot of those people. Um, but Bitcoin as a whole eliminates imbalances and uh, whenever they arise, that's what creates longer term stability and that the market learns by trial and error. You know, we could have had the same conversation two years ago and you guys on your podcast have warned of these risks. Sometimes people only learn by touching the hot stove. And, you know, a good example is that this was before I was in Bitcoin, but Mt. Gox, like mm -hmm. people got hurt there um, and people learned and that set off a wave of investments in self-custody, right? And this is painful, but people will learn. Sometimes they can't learn by anything other than, than the market being brutal. And in this, call, in this case, it's going to be 150,000 Bitcoins locked up in Celsius, not actually at Celsius. And a lot, if not most, if not all of that, is not going to go back to the people that they thought had Bitcoin. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah, and it's so. Are you witnessing people learning lessons uh, at Unchained? Like, what? How have you guys weathered this contagion event? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know, we we constantly learn. Um, you know, we learn from March twelfth, twenty twenty. We recorded a podcast that day mm -hmm. um, about five o'clock before the, uh, the 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 next wave down. That that was that was an incredibly painful day. Um, and one of the things that we did in response was actually when Bitcoin was moving higher from 20 to, you know, 10 to 20 to 30,000 back in the fall of 2020, early 2021, was we reduced LTVs, um, loan to value ratio. So before we issued loans at 50% loan to value, now we originate loans at 40% loan to value. Um, and that create that extra cushion. Um, ultimately kind of in, in this wave um, helped like, you know, kind of us helping our clients be conservative, um, help prevent people from being in positions that otherwise could have resulted in liquidations. Uh, that's not to say that there, there were um, a number of clients that failed to meet a collateral maintenance call and um, would have had to require a, a partial collateral sale. Um, in March of 2020, it was getting to a point where um, their like full loans needed to be um, liquidated. That didn't happen. Um, and really, in these last two months, from our side, it's like been night and day from a um, like just controlled. Like like there, you know, there's probably one day when it started to feel like March 12th, 2020, the, the the day that Bitcoin went down to 17 and a half. Um, but practically speaking, while this has been like seemingly constant selling pressure, um, there hasn't been any single day that has, in my view, come close to March 12, 2020. O always possible that it does. Um, now, given as much of the imbalance has already been eliminated, you know, and that liquidity forms very quickly in Bitcoin, uh, particularly as the price goes down, um, you know, anything's possible in Bitcoin. I always prepare for anything to happen. I think you have to have that approach and that you just, you 
you manage risk by like by learning from past experiences, um, over communicating with clients, getting them to post additional collateral. Um, in this period of June, fifty percent more collateral has been posted to individual loans than existed before. Um, you know, eighty to ninety percent of clients have um, satisfied obligations either by just wiring in dollars, or certain clients will call in and want to sell without needing to 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 pay off a portion of the loan. But in aggregate today, um, you know, we didn't have any loan losses and um, never have in our history. And um, that remains true today in our overall collateral position. When we think about the overall health of our book is, you know, our, our loan to value is less than 40%. Um, and that each time the price of Bitcoin goes down um, as a function of margin calls and clients posting additional margin or requesting liquidations, or if they get to a scenario where a margin call expires, having a partial liquidation, um, that kind of our, the, the health of our loan book improves as the price comes down and as we um, service collateral. And then on the custody side, are you guys seeing people realize like, oh shit, I shouldn't be. Because even if you weren't holding your Bitcoin on Celsius or BlockFi or Voyager or whatever, uh, that the signaling going over there, like if you're sitting on Coinbase or Gemini or a centralized exchange, it's like, okay, like does this contagion spread into the services where I'm holding my Bitcoin and should I seriously consider taking control of my own private keys. Yeah. And, and one thing I will add on that last point, like there is a very important, like going back, our collateral is not, not rehypothecated and all collateral is managed individually, segregated, not just from a legal perspective, but cryptographically. Um, and what that does is it puts each person in maximum control. Uh, in the context of our loans, our clients do not have control of two of their three keys like they do in the context of custody but it puts every individual 24-7 in a position to manage their individual position and it, and it eliminates the possibility of the social, socialization of risk or socialization of losses. Um, and it hasn't been an e easy period of time for our team or times teams literally worked around the clock some days, 24-7, literally calling clients one o'clock in the morning, asking them what they want to do. Um, so, and, it, and it's been hard on certain clients and there's, there's no getting past that, but, but each individual client, like that, that idea of eliminating moral hazard, each individual client, maximum control, able to post collateral, repay a loan when they want to. Um, and in, in overall, that has resulted in aggregate in far better outcomes um, to a point where not having any loan losses and that that loan to value today, even at Bitcoin at 20%, at less than 40% loan to value. Um, now, in the context of our custody business, um, we also offer vaults. We also, we offer trading in 22 states, um, working on filling out the map there and reducing minimums. But in the context of custody, in the two weeks following the Coinbase disclosure, which happened in, um, in early May, May 7th or 8th or 10th, somewhere around there, um, not to confuse anything that's happening with Celsius and these other Bitcoin lenders like BlockFi with, with Coinbase, but there was, a, there was a disclosure that Coinbase put out that um, said, in the event of bankruptcy, client assets may be considered general unsecured liabilities. Uh, and the consequence of that is that Clients with deposits at Coinbase could be considered general unsecured creditors in the event of bankruptcy. The week following that announcement, we onboarded more clients to vaults. 
than we ever had in any single week before by a large margin. Um, then, and we can talk about the nature of that because it is all related, even though to my understanding, I have no reason to believe that Coinbase is fractionally reserved um, or I don't, I don't even know if they lend Bitcoin, but they're certainly different than Celsius and BlockFi. So I don't want to confuse those two issues, but like that happened, co that disclosure happened as that price was moving from 40 to 30. And then there was that kind of wick down to 25, that, that, that May volatility, that Coinbase disclosure came out. And then the week following that, more clients than we've ever had onboarded the platform. Then after the Celsius disclosure, which was a Sunday night, I think June 11th, um, when Celsius halted all withdrawals, that week following that was also the highest week, even higher than the week that um, Coinbase came out with yes. the disclosure. So, and that is the market test. And like, you know, we, we have clients that, you know, kind of, you know, like there, there's a, there's a compounding effect, right? People learn by the market test. People learn by trial and error. And we had clients after the Celsius um, announcement and issues call and be like, oh, hey, I've got my Bitcoin on Coinbase. Like, need to get it off, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, more events of these are destined to happen. And uh, the market is learning in real time. And so I expect that to continue to happen. Um, you know, again, it's... We, you know, so many Bitcoiners go out and talk about not your keys, not your Bitcoin and the risks of rehypothecation. But until somebody gets on the wrong side of it or the risk becomes real and real being, if you don't take action, your Bitcoin might be gone, lost or best case locked up in a, and not actually best case, but likely case locked up in a bankruptcy for a long time. Um, then you start to act more quickly, you start to act, get take control of your private keys, um, and then, you know, kind of let other people suffer the consequences. Yeah. I mean, it sucks that people are losing Bitcoin and are learning hard lessons, but hard lessons are good in the long run for the market, as you just mentioned. And again, like coming back to Unchained, like you guys, just from my perspective, obviously we've had a long running relationship <laughs> between TFTC and Unchained. You guys were the first sponsor of the Bent before this podcast even started. Uh, and that's like one reason I was comfortable, like knowing the concept of not your keys, not your coins, knowing the amount of work that Drew and Joe put into building the multi-sig structure that your company is based around. Like moving forward, like having learned these lessons, do you think the market will begin to see the value in you guys focusing on multi-sig custody in everything that you do? And then how do you guys see Unchained benefiting moving forward from people learning these lessons? Yeah, and I think, I think the market of Bitcoin holders uh, is, is, is coming that way. You know, it's been a gradual step. I don't want to say the gradual and suddenly thing, but like, like that's been happening consistently over the past two years. In these episodes, it accelerates, right? Um, you know, in addition to onboarding more clients in those weeks and kind of more clients than we've ever onboarded over the last two months in any two-month period, also had more assets um, come onto our platform. Now, again, it's not deposited to our platform like a legacy bank. We're not in control of all the keys, um, but using Unchain as a platform to help secure their Bitcoin. Um, more assets as well have come on the platform in this period of volatility. That is 
the greatest market validation that our approach um, in terms of long-term security and long-term sustainability is the right one. Because um, it's not an easy route to take. No, it's the harder route to take. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and most people, you know, again, coming from the legacy financial world, do not believe in this idea that, that people will hold their own keys. Um, and they are deniers of this reality that the longer that people hold Bitcoin in possession of more knowledge, the more likely they are to hold their own key by an overwhelming margin, right? That people come into Bitcoin and they move forward on their journey. Uh, they virtually only go one way, taking control of their keys. And what that means is that the people in the market that have the most access to information, the most understanding, this is where they end up. And that, that is the fundamental um, that we anchor to. We also anchor to us ourselves. We're all clients of the platform um, in, in differing ways. And there's a chance that somebody on our team doesn't use Unchained, but, but, but versus from an executive perspective, we are. Um, we're building things that we know that we need as individuals, and that's a signal that others need them too. Uh, and now what I think that, that we're starting to see is um, investors start to appreciate uh, the distinction because it's not just the approach to security. It's the no rehypothecation. It's the general um, philosophy, which is, like I don't say is ideological. It's really driven by security first principles um, and the elimination of moral hazard, the elimination of socialized losses um, that, you know, when we sit down with lenders to talk about, you know, kind of financing our, our loan book or expanding the, the capital for our loan book, being able to sit down in the wave of all this and be like, we only support Bitcoin. Um, and I always, you know, you know, say it with an affirmation that we have, a, you know, an economic perspective as to, to, to why that is the case. We also have a technical perspective. Um, but only Bitcoin, we don't lend Bitcoin and things that look like securities and, and, and deposit-taking accounts that aren't FDI insured. Um, we only lend dollars. We lend them against Bitcoin. All assets are uh, segregated, never pooled. Um, that, that regulatory clarity, it's like there's two sides of it. There's a regulatory clarity side of it, and then there's the business side of it. Uh, and that business side is tied to combination of Bitcoin and people holding their own keys and being able to see the the numbers and the amount of uh, of people in 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 wealth that are doing that that that's what reinforces the business side the regulatory side is reinforced by you know the terra luna bullshit I even hate saying having to say that word I had to learn what rat bitcoin was this week <laughs> that like, what was that experience like fucking killed brain cells <laughs> like i was like actively mad at myself as i was like trying to understand what it was um but like these people just create these and not just harebrained things but it's like a, you can't conceive of how dumb some of these things are but set it all aside it creates real regulatory risk and overhang you know when you think about a company like coinbase they have functionally been um running a penny stock exchange exchange for people that are somewhere between you know gambling addicts um, but what what it's functionally represented is a market 
for people like Andreessen Horowitz to dump their shit on retail investors without, um, you know, virtually all the disclosures that typically would come with trading and securities. Um, and these are all centralized things. Like you can't even call them currencies, but they're centralized projects and they have a token and get them launched onto Coinbase. And then whoever was the holder of that, they had the pre-mine, dump it on retail. Like that was literally, what's his name? Um, the owner of the... Uh, Jordan Belfort? Oh yeah. We kind of like Jordan Belfort, but um, he's the owner of the Golden State Warriors, Chamath. Chamath, yeah. Yeah. Like he was talking to uh, Jason Calcanis. And, and David Sachs about Solana. About dumping Solana. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, yeah, then he came out last week and was like shitting on A16Z. It's like, dude, the receipts right here you were talking about. Yeah. It's like, is it Jordan Belfort or Chamath? You know, like that whole racket. Um, not only is it um, morally bankrupt, but for the companies that have enabled it, particularly on the trading side, which is, again, a separate issue from all of the, the legal issues that that places like Celsius and potentially BlockFi will have coming out of this, they exist at the exchanges too, right? And there's there's more and more scrutiny coming because there are locked in massive losses that people that had, you know, again, free market. Again, I think that there's benefit to the to market learning through these tests more so than potentially me writing articles about Bitcoin and the fundamentals and gradually than suddenly, um, or the Bitcoin standard. Like some people learn that way. Probably majority of people learn by a market test. So not somebody that's going to come out here and call for more regulation. Not that. But the point is from a from a capital investment standpoint, that creates real regulatory risk. Being able to be reinforced a Bitcoin only um, and not lending Bitcoin, not pooling client assets and anchoring to keys. Yeah, it's you know been 100% validated by the market and those allocating capital will start to not only appreciate the likes of Unchained, but every Bitcoin only business. Being like, those were the signal that did not get wrapped up in uh, not just chasing a bad market structure, but selling snake oil and profiting off of people that that didn't know better, that didn't have wealth that they could afford to lose. Yeah. And it, it is enraging to a certain point. Like, yes, it's a market test. Yes, it's possible because either they're open systems that aren't overly regulated. We're certainly not calling for regulation, but as you just mentioned, as retail investors lose their pants, like, what, did you, what do you expect to happen? I mean... Gary Gensler crew are, are probably licking their lips right now, ready to come down with the hammer. But then, like, when you consider the gravity of the situation unfolding in incumbent markets and traditional financial systems, like the lack of focus on Bitcoin only like, drives a lot of frustration in my life because it seems like the best chance at creating a soft landing that Jerome Powell thinks he's manufacturing is by bolstering and strengthening the Bitcoin network and the utility and services around it so that individuals can usher themselves into Bitcoin in a more orderly fashion than otherwise would happen. And seeing the Celsiuses of the world, BlockFi's, Coinbase's go out and just get distracted by this pure shit is infuriating. Like the, the, the stakes are very high right now, just globally. And it seems like a lot of people are distracted yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, like I'll admit, because I mean, before, when I started buying Bitcoin, Coinbase was the only thing 
think really existed. So I still have the Coinbase app. I only like open it up to see um, like how much the shitcoin world is getting destroyed relative to Bitcoin. Um, but like if you ever open up that fucking atrocious company's app, like Coinbase not as bad as, as Facebook as it's just like an overall entity pro probably. But eh, eh, eh. Um, maybe, lot, maybe. There's a lot of people making a lot of money on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, but, but my point being that like open it up. Like they like hide Bitcoin. You know, like literally it's hidden. You got to like, you know, there's things you never thought could exist on there. It's like, you know, the dark corners of come rocket. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know that one, but like, you know, the similar stuff. Um, and that these places, like there is a, a, a real value, like set aside the hold your own keys, real value to, and there's a reason why, and it's not for ideological reasons that, that Bitcoiners send their family and friends and the people that, they want to help understand this to Bitcoin only businesses because those places are fucking traps like Coinbase where it's like, or PayPal or Venmo or whoever, you know, whatever place offers a bunch of cryptocurrencies on an app um, where someone gets on there to buy Bitcoin, they have unit bias and they start, you know, it's like the alcoholic, you know, looking at the bottle being like, am I going to drink that? And they're like, no, I'm not going to drink it. And then they drink it, you know, um, that, that, that is the same thing. And by having an application that's focused on Bitcoin, not only are those people finding ways to deliver more value to Bitcoin holders. Like when I think about us, we are actually developing infrastructure for the Bitcoin network. We are helping people secure their Bitcoin, hold their own keys, be put in a position where they can have permissionless access to their wealth. Um, and we're going to be building more and more applications that help people save Bitcoin, spend Bitcoin, that it's not just about trading or, or lending dollars, where it's like there's an old world and we're transitioning to the new world and our goal is to put our clients in a position to have the most Bitcoin and to make that Bitcoin a utility for them. In my world, Bitcoin being a utility is being able to secure your life savings and know it's going to be there and that no man, woman, bureaucrat or judge could stand between you and your life savings like what unfortunately happened to people in Canada where the life savings were zapped um, and to spend it because ultimately at the end of the day, money is there to be spent to buy goods and services and to help fuel an economy like buying steak from um, coal, KNC cattle, save your wealth in a form of money that can't be manipulated, that, that, that you cannot be prevented from accessing and then be able to spend that whenever it is you need it on more things. That's that's that is the infrastructure that's critical to Bitcoin. That's the, the those are the custody assets that that are important. Uh, Lightning increasingly important. Um, but even the, the Bitcoin companies that that are custodial offerings that are that are just Bitcoin, they are delivering value too. They are helping people safeguard Bitcoin. They are not taking risks with those Bitcoin, at least not to to. To, to my knowledge of the Bitcoin only platforms that I know of. And it puts someone in a place where they're, they're getting what they're there to do, um, get access to Bitcoin and that for Bitcoin companies to survive, they have to actually develop infrastructure that's valuable to the Bitcoin network. Uh, and that's very different than what a Coinbase is. Yeah. As an example. And it's much harder too. Like that's, 
again, I, I really want to lean into that. Like you guys, Unchained, other companies like River, Swan, Bitcoin only, Cash App, what Block's doing. Like it's it's the harder route. There's a bunch of sirens out there trying to lure Ulysses off off of his ship and into the water so they can eat him alive. And it's easy money. It's so indicative of this fiat culture that that we grew up in and we find ourselves in. It's it's fascinating. Again, you can watch. We have this beautiful technology like Bitcoin that's providing us a vehicle to escape the madness, and yet people just want to replicate it and and use it to to keep scamming people. Yeah, and I and I I don't blame them on one hand because Bitcoin is hard to understand. It's difficult to see. Um, but when you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like once you understand it, the the real fundamental value and in, in innovation, and why twenty one million Bitcoin and and and, the, and why finite scarcity is, is not only so important, but that like how it's actually achieved is like you know probably the will will be the most important thing that's happened in any of our lifetimes from an economic perspective or from a technological innovation perspective. Um, but that is hard to see. At the same time, and that when you have, you know, and put it to combination of Silicon Valley and Wall Street, like virtually the same in my mind, um, that they're, they don't understand Bitcoin. That's not, that's not to say everyone. There's good people in Silicon Valley that understand Bitcoin. Uh, once is Casares being a, um, a standard bearer in, in my path to understand Bitcoin. So it's not to say everybody. Right, but the A16Zs, the the traditional VCs, um, the the Wall Street investment class, they don't understand Bitcoin, but they start to pattern match it to money, and they try to just rebuild things that have existed in the financial legacy financial system and and legacy financial models. And if you can't see Bitcoin, you cannot create value in Bitcoin. Like you can't see the field. So it's. Bitcoin is both hard to see, but then when you anchor to that point, when a lot of these people can't see it, can't understand it, it's also predictable that they're going to to pattern match to legacy financial institutions, and they're going to build the wrong thing. That's why that you could literally put three hundred fifty million in BlockFi and have it evaporate. Um, I think I I think well, I I don't know if it was BlockFi, but around the time when BlockFi did that raise. Um, River announced their like 12 million Series A. And I was like, River's 12 million Series A will create more value than the 350 million that was just invested into BlockFi around the same period of time. Because if you're building the wrong infrastructure, it does not matter how much money you throw at that fire. Um, it's not going to create value. Um, and so I, I, I really do anchor, anchor to that point. I, I, don't, I don't fault people because I have an appreciation for how Bitcoin and how difficult it is to see. Um, but, you know, kind of at the, at the end of the day, Bitcoiners and people that understand Bitcoin and investors that understand Bitcoin are going to be the ones that create value. Yeah. And so with all this being said, let's, let's talk about the broader world outside of Bitcoin. I think we have Jerome Powell raised rates by 75 bips earlier this month. Uh, there's expectations that'll continue to raise, but the prospects of the the height at which he'll take interest rates are falling uh, in real time. Uh, we have inflation running rampant. We have supply chain 
issues and energy and food, particularly beginning to hit a very critical boiling point. Uh, we, we have stock market sell-offs. We're seeing Japan begin to lose control of their, their yield curve, which they've been successfully controlling for, for a matter of decades now. Like, what are you seeing in the, the broader markets and uh, how are you seeing this, uh, this summer unfold as rates remain relatively elevated and markets react to that? Yeah, I think, you know, kind of takes us back to our first podcast on the roof of your old place in Brooklyn um, where we talked about Ender's Game. And um, I haven't gone back and re- reread that recently, but I think I'm doing pretty good. Um, and that the same that was true then, which became evident in the fall of 2019 and then the, the spring of 2020, um, the same underlying issues exist today. Um, we have a broader financial system that has too much debt. Um, and there's two ways to deal with that. You can either restructure and eliminate imbalances by reducing leverage or what the Fed does, which is print more money to be able to sustain unsustainable debt levels and unsustainable leverage. And so, um, the same thing that the Fed is trying to do today, and I'll focus on the Fed and the U.S. system rather than what's happening in the JGB market and the yen, um, just because I'm, I'm most knowledgeable about it. And, I, it. and the same thing that exists here exists there. Um, but, but helping people understand the fundamentals of that is that when the Federal Reserve creates new dollars to sustain existing debt levels, what it actually does is induce more credit to be created by design. Um, that is how the legacy financial system works. It is a debt-driven financial system. Um, it is what ensures that dollars, as a function of time over time, um, will become uh, less and less scarce or more abundant. Um, trillions more will have to be printed from this point in time. But in each one of these episodes, and I'll just use... 2017 to 2019 and 2020 as an example um or maybe maybe it's just helpful to go all the way back to the financial crisis you know time of financial crisis ender's game basics um there was 52.7 trillion of dollar denominated debt and there was only about 350 billion dollars in the banking system um and that's vanilla debt fixed liability fixed maturity debt so every dollar had been levered and lent over 150 times that is only possible as a function of the Fed bailing out markets over the course of decades leading up to the financial crisis. Well, fast forward to about September of 2017, in the post-great financial crisis period, the Fed created 3.6 trillion net new dollars, base money, not banks creating credit, new dollar reserves entering the system, created 3.6 trillion new dollars. One way to think about that is taking a system that has too much debt and introducing more dollars that in a, in a sense, does deleverage it, introduces more dollars to fund dollar liabilities in the banking system. September of 2017, they start to withdraw that 3.6 trillion. And totally forecastable, impossible to predict exactly when financial markets would break or which market would break first, um, started to withdraw the liquidity that it, they had put in pre-financial crisis. And they were doing it quote, slowly, um, but 
the first signs of that system not working were it was in late 2018. Um, that was when Mnuchin called the banks like right around Christmas and was like, you gotta stop or do something, you know, like these people control. Um, but then almost immediately after that, the Fed started to signal that it would start to slow its um, balance sheet unwind um, later in 2019. Um, but over the course of those months in 2019, lead up to September, or September, the Fed broke the repo markets. Um, the basically dollars left that market as liquidity was, was being drained as a whole. And um, the repo market spiked from like 3% to 10% overnight. And the Fed the next day inserted 75 billion new dollars. That explains what's about to happen. Um, that, but, the, but the difference being that that basically broke the market in September of 2019. The Fed had to put in $500 billion of new QE, um, stealth QE, before then really breaking the broader markets in March 12th of 2020. Again, everyone associates it with COVID, didn't have to do with COVID. Um, and then subsequently, they injected another $4.5 trillion from March of 2020 to today. That those new dollars caused the credit system to expand when it otherwise would have contracted. Takes this problem of too much debt and not enough dollars, and rather than letting credit restructure, it's put new dollars in. But those new dollars do not just sustain existing credit levels. It causes and is designed to allow credit to expand further. So you have a system that has too much debt, and you literally give the heroin addict more heroin. Um, and so where we're at a point of today versus just two years ago, the credit system is probably expanded by another $8 trillion, So we're sitting just, just south of $90 trillion. So if you go all the way to back to the financial crisis, there was $52 trillion, $52 to $53 trillion of credit. And built up over the course of a century, essentially, almost a century. Yeah, and now today we're at $90 trillion. Fixed liability, fixed maturity, very vanilla debt. I'm not talking, you know, synthetics or derivatives or you know, unfunded pension liabilities. And the Fed is signaling that it's going to, it's raising interest rates. But but my view of this world is the only thing that really matters is the Fed's balance sheet. That from the Fed's perspective, their only ability to, to truly impact interest rates is by changing the supply of dollars. And that in response to inflation becoming out of control, um, they have signaled that they will have, quote, fortitude and, you know, doing what the Fed did in the 1970s, albeit we're in an entirely different world today and they're not going to be successful in it, of controlling inflation by tightening financial conditions. Well, because we are in 2022 in this last violent period of, of, of credit volatility and, and the last liquidity crisis, which what happened on March 12th of 2020, um, or in that week leading up, but then... Um, massively kind of breaking March 12th, 2020. The, the Fed has not even started to, to unwind any, any dollars from its balance sheet. They signaled that they would start early June, but because that last period was only two years past, the market is front running. They're saying, I know the music's going to stop. You know, March of 2020 was 11, 12 years past the financial crisis, those, those markets forgot. Um, these markets remember. And, and so credit has started to massively sell off. 
um, over the course of the last six months, really. So the Fed started to raise interest rates in the beginning of May, but every time they say 50 basis points, 75 basis points, what mar matters is the market. The market sets interest rates. So the high-yield credit market has... Um, the market value has reduced such that the, the yield on high yield credit has increased um, 400 basis points or 4%, right? So what matters to those companies is not what the Fed's doing with 75 basis points. It's they've already gotten their interest rate hikes because each time someone needs to go refi in the high yield market, they're paying a higher rate by 400 basis points or 4% versus a year ago or where rates were in the last 12 months. Um, the, the IG market, 300 basis points. Those companies that um, are saddled with all this debt can't survive in that world. So um, what I think happens is the same thing that has happened historically because it is the identical problem that continues to exist. The Fed will start to shrink its balance sheet. It will break credit markets and it's going to need to print more money than it ever has before in order to keep that 90 trillion propped up. Um, and I think that the, you know, the whole thing is a travesty, but the problem is they are trying to rein in quote inflation, um, by quote tightening financial conditions. And there's something fundamentally true about this, this fact that cheap credit access to cheap credit is what is used to finance development of the very goods and services that we need because the system is um, addicted to it like a heroin addict is addicted to heroin, right? So there is nothing about tightening financial conditions that's going to create more food or energy, right? Um, the Fed artificially manipulating the supply of money to, to cause interest rates to rise does not result and more oil coming out of the ground. Um, if anything, it results in less. It's going to further screw up supply chains um, and that the Fed is trying to pull something out of like the 1970s playbook, but we're in 2022 and the construction of the monetary system could not be further away from where it was then. Uh, and so I think that um, the Fed is going to, you know, in summary of that long-winded answer, they're going to continue to tighten conditions, potentially shrink the balance sheet until credit markets break. When they do, they're going to have to print more money than they ever had. This episode is going to further disrupt supply chains and cause inflation to be exacerbated throughout this period. Um, and that's going to, I mean, it's already um, at a point that, you know, hurts me too, but like, some people like, you know, on different, you know, in particular people on the lower end of the economic spectrum, they get hurt a lot more. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think, um, you know, that that's my kind of explanation of the fundamentals and also just like what I view as, as about to play out over the next month or two. Yeah. <sighs> you never want to be the one, you never want to try to predict hyperinflation, but something I've been saying on this show the last few weeks is the conditions that precede hyperinflation historically throughout the world. And Weimar Republic is my favorite example. You could use Venezuela as another very similar example are playing out here in the United States in 2022. 
uh, like said it many times on the show, hyperinflation is two parts. It's part mechanical, which Parker just explained in great detail on the credit side and the expansion of the monetary base. But then it's part social, right? Like it's a con game. It's a confidence game at the end of the day. Like once people begin to lose confidence that the Fed or the Treasury has any control over the money, more importantly, if they lose confidence and don't think they have any control over it, that's what really kicks off the potential for hyperinflation. And I worry that we are getting extremely close to that point when you add up the factors of just how bad we've messed up the supply chains with the lockdowns and uh, a lack of political will to invest the necessary capital and critical energy infrastructure. The food crisis that is coming with that, I mean, it's a product of the energy crisis because most people don't understand this, but energy is a critical input in the food supply chain. Um, Well, it's, it's technically a critical input in everything. Yes. Yes. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. (laughs) <laughs> like, I just got to call you out. It's yeah. very, yes, yeah. this is true. But with food, it's becoming very apparent that uh, the lack of raw materials, particularly with fertilizer uh, needed to, and diesel to, to run the trucks to, to f- actually farm is, is leading to a food crisis that's becoming exacerbated. And then you couple that again with social things. I mean, I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that the vaccine rollout uh, and va- mass vaccinating a whole country, a whole world is probably not the smartest idea. And we're beginning to uh, realize the negative externalities that, that are coming with that rollout. They're hitting a point where they're almost undeniable. They're undeniable to me, but most of the world is still uh, head in the sand. Like, oh, it's not bad. It's not bad. But data that's coming out about adverse of, uh, effects, particularly people getting myocarditis and dying young, Uh, life insurance claims data that's coming out and the the fertility data that's starting to come out of many countries around the world, um, that fertility is falling uh, materially. You're you're talking about a 26 Sigma event in Taiwan with their latest uh, birth numbers, a nine Sigma event in Germany with their latest numbers. And so you have a situation unfolding where over the course of the summer, gas is going to go up, food prices are going to go up and people are going to begin to realize that the vaccine is hurting people uh, on, a, on a massive scale. And uh, you're going to look at not only the Fed, but the federal government and be like, you guys messed everything up. I have no confidence in your ability to control anything, let alone the monetary system in and of itself. So that's what, like, do you see that as well? I mean, Am I, I, I don't disagree with a lot of what, you know, kind of that whole framing. I think if I, if I anchored to a fundamental, it's that centralized control of things leads to bad outcomes everywhere. And um, centralized bad outcomes exacerbate each other. Um, when I think about kind of the, the, the economic, the, the fundamental standpoint, one point that I, I typically like to bring up is that a lot of people associate hyperinflation with um, with the function of printing money, but and, and it is that, but but it but at a root level, and I think I wrote about this in, in Bitcoin does not waste energy when I ex- explained kind of Venezuela about how they have all these energy resources under the ground, but they don't have a currency to be able to coordinate 
economic resources to extract that energy, refine it, get it to market. And now, you know, one of the countries that has more oil reserves than any other country in the world, maybe second to, to Saudi Arabia, literally can't get reliable power to their city centers. Um, and they lose access to basic food, water, healthcare. Um, that it is the money printing that creates economic imbalance because it allows imbalances to be sustained. And that economic imbalance come the TFTC sign. The TFTC sign is imbalance. It's taped to the wall. We're gonna we're gonna glue it up there tomorrow. Is that a is that a sign? Like I mean it is a sign, but like I was it, about to like talk even more shit about money printing and hyperinflation and then like the wall starts falling. It's poetic. Um, We're getting signs here. Fun signs. So the economic imbalance is, is sustained and that comes in the form of supply chains not just being disruptive, disrupted, but the economic system and different parts of it not being able to respond to changes in prices because the money actually starts to break down in its ability to coordinate economic activity. And where that is materializing and, and one of the like leading indicators that I'm paying attention to, you know, kind of both by talking to people um, out in West Texas or my contacts in the energy industry of like, hey, with, with gasoline in Texas at $5, which is insane. I can only imagine what it is in um, communist places like San Francisco. But $5 gasoline, I'm like, hey, like, are the producers, like, are we seeing any supply response? Nope. Like, not able to find labor, right? Well, when you, you know, in different compounding, bad centralization outcomes, you know, when you have this ESG bullshit um, where oil and gas has been vilified for years, right? Years, if not decades. Um, and then, capital investment stops going into developing more capacity throughout the supply chain, refineries, um, pipelines, upstream. Those people go find jobs elsewhere, right? And then when we start to get supply shortages and supply and demand imbalances, you can't just go get that guy back on the wellhead and drill the well and like, Supply imbalances do not correct themselves easily. And so the point though is it's not just the money printing. People think like prices go up because money being printed. It's actually because as the money becomes more abundant, its ability to function, fulfill its primary fundamental role in the economy of coordinating economic resources becomes materially impaired. And you you can't have suppliers just turn on like Joe Biden says, like bring gas prices down. Like that's not the way the real world works. Um, and so it's actually, as money becomes more abundant, the supply of real goods and services actually becomes more and more scarce, both relative to the, um, to the supply of money and on an absolute basis. And the things that you don't, that you really need don't appear at the grocery store, don't um, appear at the gas station. And so like, I'm not a doomsdayer, but like that, that is what feels like it's happening. And when I talk to contacts in the energy industry, 
they're they're communicating things like we're not you know like you know maybe want some producers producing more but in aggregate we're not seeing the type of supply response that you would expect and that I saw a chart I don't know if it was Brian Gitt or the Doomberg guys showing something similar that if you have oil at $120 a barrel and gasoline at say of Texas $5 for, for for 2 months and you're not starting to see suppliers bringing more resources online uh, that is a signal that supply cannot respond. Um, now that does not mean that maybe if oil goes to 120 that some additional supply comes online, but those are the leading indicators um, to say if increase in prices of the of the things that we fundamentally need like food and energy are not um, that we're not seeing supply response to, to bring more goods to market, that to me is the signal that we're potentially kind of entering the, the early stages of a hyperinflationary event. And so again, certain producers will. Um, I gave a presentation, you know, uh, probably two years ago at Bitblock Boom called under the title Gradually and Suddenly. And I talked about, I was like, hey, I'm going to talk to you about hyperinflation day, but I'm going to make you feel good about it. Um, there's nothing about hyperinflation that is good, but it's easy to get lost in like the paralysis of, negative economic outcomes and the instability that creates. But Bitcoin is the solution to that. And even with Bitcoin going from 70,000 to around 20,000 today, nothing has changed about Bitcoin's ability to enforce its fixed supply. That finite scarcity is its true innovation. It is the ultimate solution. It is the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we're all probably going to have to experience a little bit more discomfort that we're used to in order to get on the other side of the instability that the Fed and the Treasury and Congress help ha have helped create. Um, but that is the source of optimism. If there wasn't a solution, if Bitcoin didn't exist, like shit would get real bad. Uh, that is the thing that will ultimately create long-term stability. In the world of Bitcoin, we tolerate... I, I use it, we, me, but, in, but generally anybody that's going to participate in the market has to tolerate that short-term volatility. What they get in the long-term is economic stability. The Fed system, the opposite. For, for years, decades, it's managed short-term st stability um, at the consequence of long-term instability and long-term volatility. That's starting to, to you know, kind of burst at the seams. And and always anchoring to that idea, Bitcoin is the solution to that problem. Like, you know, Bitcoin does fix everything, fix the money, fix the world, sign outside, love it. Great addition to Bitcoin commons. Um, but a form of money that can't be printed is the solution to a form of money that is constantly debased and constantly printed. And that is the underlying source of it, economic instability. Yeah. But... People can't get over the price volatility. So, so what I want to transition is like, how do we get this message out there? And uh, you, you. So that's why I want to ask you, particularly because you're out there spreading the message. What has been most potent for you when you're on the road and having maybe the staunchest no coiner begin to open up to the idea that that Bitcoin may be something that they should seriously consider and even further adopt with vigor. Potent and vigor. In one sentence, <laughs> this was not a challenge. Um, yeah, I, um, you know, different contexts, different situations, it varies. Um, but 
I always try to relate it to the people that I'm talking to. So if I'm talking to somebody on the oil and gas side, I'm talking about a lot of these supply chain issues um, and the lack of the ability to respond to increases in price and having the producers be able to capture that increase in price. And that, you know, kind of, you, you know, anchoring to this idea of proof of work um, without using the SHA-256 context being like, you know, you know what it takes to get a barrel of oil out of the ground or, you know, what it takes to get um, natural gas out of the ground. You cannot keep trading your real goods and services that can only be produced as a function of your time and human capital and physical capital for things that can be easily printed because they are actively devaluing in front of your eyes and you're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. And I try to create a, um, a more visceral appreciation for this idea of you produce barrel in the context of an energy production, whether it's, you know, a rancher, if I'm talking to coal, um, at KNC cattle or really anybody in, in, in real industry, you know, producing real things of value that, that human beings need to consume, um, not wall street products, but, um, that, those are the that that becomes most effective in these periods where um, there are higher periods of inflation that, like in my view, will only get worse. Where this is not a period, this is it's know, not transitory. This is not transitory. It's not. Janet, I was told it was transitory. Janet, this is not transitory. Um, is it Putin's inflation? Is price hikes? It's uh, it, it's Putin's inflation. It's Biden's inflation. It's Trump's inflation. It's Yellen's inflation. Powell's inflation, Bernanke, Bernanke's inflation, Kashkari's inflation, anyone back to the 70s. Um, Bitcoin is our not inflation. Um, but, but, but those are the ideas that I talked about. I think the hardest thing for them to understand is, um, you know, if, if Bitcoin's fundamental value is the fact that it has a fixed supply and it's resistant to inflation, why is it going down when there's rampant inflation? And I've gotten the question of, of like, when does the inflation hedge or the inflation hedge trade start to, to really quote work? And um, so that's the, that's the thing that's hardest to understand. What I explain to people in those contexts is what we talked about really at the beginning, which is um, the global financial markets, 400 trillion, or maybe today it's like 350 trillion. Um, and after kind of, those markets have sold off um, and that while Bitcoin is significant in size, it is still small. And that when the dollar, which is the primary funding currency in the world today, largest economic system, largest cross-border um, source of, of credit, when that system contracts, it is still the 800-pound gorilla in the world. And uh, all liquid assets get sold uh, in dollar deleveraging scenarios and Bitcoin is liquid and it is, well, significant in size, small in the grand scheme of things. And so it's not so much that is, Bitcoin isn't working exactly as intended. It is. Each block continues to be solved. Um, but even if the Fed didn't print another dollar, Bitcoin would re replace the dollar because even if the Fed didn't print money, that dollar credit system collapsed damned if you do, damned if you don't, and Bitcoin's the solution in either scenario. Um, but trying to help them understand the volatility and why in this environment, if, if this fundamental case of Bitcoin is true, 
why the reverse isn't happening in Bitcoin. And it will over time. People zoom out. Um, but they, they, you know, my experience kind of understand the fundamentals when you connect it to, to real work and real productive value, but then needing to understand the, the volatility in the interim. And just as, as has always happened, happened in March 12th, 2020, the Bitcoin market finds a base, a home. Liquidity forms. The, the herd is cold. Uh, imbalances are eliminated. And when Bitcoin doesn't die, that is what sets off the next wave of market learning. That, that people learn from that event more so than any other. Yeah. And tell me if I've been smoking too much opium recently, but I think with the Bitcoin ecosystem, I hate using that word, but the Bitcoin market deleveraging at the pace that it is now, maybe there's a little bit, little bit more to go. There's a lot of minor miners that are overextended still questions in the air about, other centralized lending platforms and centralized exchanges as well, uh, whether or not they'll lead to more cascaded selling in the short to medium term. However, it does seem like uh, we're learning, the market's learning lessons quick via this massive, quick deleveraging in the Bitcoin market. Like I see a scenario, or again, you talk about things in energy in food markets uh, becoming exacerbated throughout the summer. Um, Bitcoin, maybe at that point, is already done its deleveraging or is near the tail end of it. Markets are beginning to realize that the Fed doesn't have control. Inflation's not uh, not subsisting. Uh, they're going to revert course and begin printing money and lowering interest rates, which is like, all right, is that what got us into this problem? Is that going to exacerbate the problem now? And you have a situation where there's a potential for a mass sell-off in traditional markets and Bitcoin sitting there, maybe at its base that you just described, relatively cheap, significantly delevered. And is that a point where people are like, all right, shit's hitting the fan, it's traditional market, like let's let's give Bitcoin a chance. Yeah, I think I think so ultimately. Um I would be very cautious, and I am both as it relates to you know my, my own thinking as an individual, but also as we, as we think about unchain and plan and, you know, are aware and cognizant of everything that can happen in the, in the market volatility of Bitcoin, that so long as the Fed thinks that they can control inflation by tightening financial conditions and forcing deleveraging in, in, in the U.S. financial system, um, that it is hard to believe that liquid assets will not continue to be sold. Um, because the thing that I did not say before, which is everything about Bitcoin is about knowledge distribution. More people figure out Bitcoin as a function of time. Um, but people cannot flee to something that they do not understand. Um, as people understand it, they adopt Bitcoin and, and be, become accumulators. Part of what and how that knowledge is distributed is after these bouts of volatility, seeing Bitcoin find a base and then seeing that it didn't die. And that in a free market with no bailouts, no one to protect anybody, there is no moral hazard. Those imbalances do get eliminated. And as they are eliminated, the last seller, marginal seller at a certain price leaves and new buyers come in. And the market learns from that event as a whole, um, just as the people who deposited Celsius learn about the risk of uh, of counterparty risk and um, trusting people that they shouldn't. So, I think that you know 
ultimately it is be very weary of all asset prices as denominated in dollars so long as the Fed is tightening financial conditions because there is a chance that this is it, this is it, the bottom of Bitcoin um, and that that we're already the, at that point of last marginal seller relative to, to marginal buyer. Um, the broader global financial markets, in particular the dollar system, still dwarf the Bitcoin system. And, you know, a lot of people in Bitcoin do not understand it. So, um, you know, I haven't sold any Bitcoin as Bitcoin's come down. I never sold a Bitcoin. I only ever saved Bitcoin. Never bought a shitcoin. Uh, never traded on BitMEX either. Um, never put my Bitcoin in Celsius or BlockFi. But um, the the point is that people respond to chaos in different ways and, and, and you can only tolerate the volatility if you have some fundamental understanding of, of why you own what you own. Um, and so um, at some point, Bitcoin becomes again, uncorrelated. It is uncorrelated in aggregate because it is the only thing that's actually competing with the dollar. All these other assets are just designed to create, to generate or accumulate more dollars. Bitcoin is the only thing that is truly uncorrelated because it's actually competing at a fundamental level with the base money. Um, so um, I, would, I would not, you know, ever go out and say until the Fed reverses course. It's like Bitcoin wins in in any scenario over time, regardless of what the Fed does. So it's not just about money printing. It's a uh, superior form of money six ways from Sunday, but but anchoring to that foundation being the fixed supply and the fact that it's censorship resistant. Um, and so, you know, I think what, what happens more likely is that the Fed tightens financial conditions. Inflation gets worse. That freaks people out. Fed reverses course, that causes inflation to exasperate even more. Through that period of time, more people have figured out Bitcoin from a fundamental perspective, uh, and Bitcoin can kind of, you know, within that period of time, finds its base. Um, but just caution people to to be very wary. Um, and it's not specific to Bitcoin; it's any it's any liquid asset. Any um, if there's forced deleveraging in the dollar system, people are going to have to source dollars to shore up dollar liabilities because even though they've printed a shit ton of dollars um, currently where the system sits it's 90 trillion of, of debt of dollar nominated debt and about nine trillion dollars so uh, even though that money printing delevers the system in a way or in a sense the world is still massively short dollars and the dollar is still what most people need to buy energy and food so um, you know it doesn't change any of my thinking about bitcoin but just from a market uh, environment and sentiment. Um, people need to be aware of it. Be aware. Be weary. We got. We got to end on a positive. All right, you ended on a positive. I, I got got me all. You just killed my hopium high. No, no. <laughs> like, um, no. That, that is. Hey, very, is your boy walking yet? My son, my two week old. Yeah. No, not yet. Not yet. My my oldest is. Yeah, yeah, I know. He's that. running. I know that. He's running away. I got from high me. hopes. Yeah. yeah. For the youngest. He's got he's got good tummy time though. He's not walking yet, but he's uh soon. He's able to hold himself up on his forearms and move his head, which is pretty uh, advanced for a 2-week old. Yeah. The the newest uh the newest bitcoiner that I know. 
Yeah. Yeah. He's a Bitcoiner already. Yeah. I had him uh, create a private key with an open dime. Bitcoin generation. Yeah. The, 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 the people that will only have ever known Bitcoin. That, that's what gives me hope. That's right. And that's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. As somebody with two children now, you look at them, you're like, holy shit, we need to, you need to fix this. Cause you're going to eat and you're going to eat. And you're going to be comfortable and warm when you need to be and cold when you need to be. And there's, there's no other option. Like, like I hope share this episode with other people. We need to get, like, I think the lesson I'm taking from this is better information, better knowledge of Bitcoin, how it works, why it's important, how it compares to the system that we all grew up in um, leads to better decision-making around where, where you park your, your savings. Yeah. I think it's just the most beautiful thing about Bitcoin is, you know, in aggregate as a system, it is in control of its own destiny and each as individuals we're in control of our own destiny. Um, and I think that that is, that is the source of hope that Bitcoin is the answer uh, from an economic perspective. It is the solution to the problem that has gotten us to this point. Um, and people need to take that seriously. That Bitcoin scarcity is not a value if people do not understand it of why it's relevant. And then uh, if they put it at risk unduly um, and that it's, it's very easy to sit there and not take possession of your private keys and think I'll do it in a week or I'll do it in two weeks. And I know the thing about Celsius, but my Bitcoin's on Coinbase. And I know they made that disclosure that um, if you're learning on the TV. It's too late. It's too late. <laughs> you know, I said that uh, in the, the same presentation at BitBlock Boom where it's like, if you're learning about your currency hyperinflating on, on TV, uh, you've waited too long. Um, you know, if you wait to get a, we've halted withdrawals from Celsius, I'm sorry, you've waited too long. And so I think it's just a, it's a function of having urgency, um, and taking it seriously. Um, your Bitcoin that is there, one likely isn't there. And two, if they're rehypothecating, it's not really yours. Uh, you need to read the fine print. Um, but you know, with, with what we're doing, helping people control their own private keys. Um, we've got a whole platform to help people take that step. It is one of those things with great responsibility or with great power comes great responsibility. Taking private key ownership is something that people shouldn't do lightly. It's, um, will my lifelong best friend, our chief product officer at Unchained, he used probably the best analogy I've ever heard. Um, it's not harder than driving a car, but, if you get behind a wheel without knowing how to drive, you could do some damage to yourself. Um, and that's what our concierge process is designed to help people with that, that want to take that step, but um, are uncomfortable uh, or feel like they're, they have knowledge gaps, which many people often do. Uh, really institutionalizing that process of, of putting people in a position to either go directly to holding their own keys when they buy Bitcoin or being on Coinbase, accelerating their process or Gemini, accelerating the process to take, take ownership. So um, yeah, I always anchor it at the highest level to Bitcoin being the source of hope, but holy <laughs> shit. Uh, we shouldn't have taken that with painting. Yeah, too. that was a bad idea. I actually thought about that. So we'll, 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 we'll end on that note that the Bitcoin is the hope. Um, but, but don't, uh, don't leave destiny in, in some fool's hands. Take control of your own destiny. Marketing guru of Bitcoin right here. Uh, go get your Bitcoin driver's license test with the unchained concierge team. <laughs> Every time you say that.
<laughs> Can't pronounce it. Concierge. 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 I'm going to start fucking it up. <laughs> Concierge. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I said. You get it right about three out of 10 times. I'll take three out of 10. That's Hall of Fame. Be weary. Extreme ownership. Understand what's going on. Share this episode with a friend, Parker Lewis. I mean, I see you like in the office every day now. It's, it's always a pleasure. Come to the Bitcoin Commons. Come to the Bitcoin Commons. We'll make sure that the uh, the wall isn't falling down by the time you get here. We've got we've got Bitcoin meetups the f- the first three Thursday of the month now. Awesome Bitcoin Club first Thursday of the month. Uh, actually, second Wednesday is Austin Lightning Developers, not second Thursday, and then third Thursday is BitDevs. Come to Austin. Come to the Bitcoin Commons. BitDevs was last week. I couldn't make it. Two weeks. It was two weeks ago? Getting old. Yeah. It was two weeks ago? Yeah. Last week was Houston. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a good excuse not to be there. I was having a, a child. He's uh, not walking yet. No, not yet. But he's got a strong neck. Go forth, freaks. Spread the word. Peace and love.